Hi, this is Robert P. Otone, writer of The Triangle, part of the Rise Trilogy, and you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. And welcome to episode 55 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Stiak, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, uh, horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Uh, Michelle and I co-edited horror literature from Gothic to postmodern, also from McFarland. Facebook is filled with posts about creepy, horrific films, and pumpkin spice is permeating the air. That must mean it is time for our annual visit to the MCU. The Mimic Cinematic Universe, that is. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Mimic 2, released in 2001 and directed by... Jean D. Saganzek. But before we get started, here's a plot synopsis, just in case you haven't seen the film. Um, but before we get in the plot, I think it's important to say, how did we get here? And why are we talking about Mimic 2 on an HP Lovecast podcast? Well, a year ago we talked about Mimic 1. Um, a long time ago, Michelle and I, we were in L.A. We went to the LACMA where they had the big Guillermo del Toro exhibit going on. It was awesome. We got the, uh, the book uh, for the exhibit there. And, you know, del Toro's a big Lovecraftian person, a lot of Lovecraft stuff, but not so much Mimic. And we were like, you know what? It'd be interesting to revisit that movie. It's been a while. Um, so I went and bought the Blu-ray of the Mimic Trilogy, and we watched the first one last autumn, and now we had two other movies. You know, we're going to get our money's worth out of that Blu-ray, darn it. And so We are expensing it, after all. We are expensing <laughs> it. So, you know, we figured, you know what, on the anniversary of Mimic 1, we'll talk about Mimic 2, and then this time next year, that's right, folks, Mimic 3. So for all the new listeners out there who didn't know our backstory of Mimic, uh, I, I've been excited uh, <laughs> to dive into a movie I have not seen before. So, so what happens in this movie? So a few years after the events of Mimic 1, the Judas bug seems to have all been destroyed. Or have they? Once... One seems to have survived, and it also has evolved. How has it evolved? It kills people, and steals their faces, and wears them. Remy Panos, a background entomologist from the first Mimic, returns as the lead character in Mimic 2. And everyone wants to get with her. Bad boys, creepy boys, her students, policemen, and yes, even the Mimic bug. However, the Mimic bug does not like competition, so it kills off all the other dudes. Detective Klasky is investigating the murders, of which Remy is at the center of it all. And at the same time, the Department of Defense takes an interest in Remy, as they suspect a Judas bug is still around, and they want to kill it. Eventually, everyone is locked inside of a decommissioned school that Remy teaches at, trying to evade the mimic bug while the DoD tries to fumigate the building. Remy gets bug-stabbed, but then she gets bug-healed. Detective Klasky runs into the building to save her. 
but it turns out it wasn't Detective Klasky at all. It was the Mimic Bug pretending to be him. So Remy cuts off its head with a pair of scissors. <laughs> so, Michelle, what did you think of Mimic 2? The sequel... <laughs> to Mimic 1 the very because Mimic 1 there were so many unanswered questions that we had to know going by our you know multiplicities that we study so much craving more Mimic 2 Oh yeah I totally wanted more <laughs> Mimic 2 after seeing the first one You know and to be fair I actually really enjoyed the first one um and it was nice to revisit it last year and of course, like you, I haven't seen Mimic 2 and I haven't seen Mimic 3. Uh, both were, I believe, direct to video. Mm -hmm. um, but as for my overall thought, I would say, honestly, I was not going in expecting really anything from the sequel. Um, and while it could have been better, I do feel that it it wasn't that bad. I am on the same page. I, I went in zero expectations, uh, you know. I actually have a soft spot for unnecessary sequels. Uh, not you so have a much soft spot for a lot of things. I do, I do. <laughs> uh, not so much remakes, though. But you know, like the Scanners movies. You know, Scanner Cop and Scanners, the new takeover or whatever. And you know, just movies that don't need a sequel, but you know, they attempt to build sequels to kind of one capitalize on it, but two maybe flesh out something. I got a soft I, spot I would for say those. Transfers. Sorry to interrupt, but Transfers really makes an effort well, with that. Full Moon turns everything into a series. Did we really need another Evil Bong? Did we really need another Ginger Dead Man? Charles Band's going to milk that stuff while it's worth. <laughs> but, but Mimic 2, unnecessary sequel. There was no unsolved questions from Mimic 1. Uh, but I'm I'm same boat. I was actually very pleasantly surprised that uh, it actually, instead of just rehashing the first film... It tries to build upon the first film, and I, I admire that. Kind of like the Tremors series, where I, I've only seen like the first 10, 20 tr uh, Tremors movies, not all 50 of them. But like, you know, Tremors 1, you have the Graboid, and then Tremors 2, I think, how do we up the stakes on this? You know, they introduced, I think it's Tremors 2, that they had the, the ass blasters, is what they call it. They're like bipedal Tremors. And then I think it's Tremors three that they have flying Tremors. I mean, didn't it, they go back in back in time yeah, for one of them? Yeah, there's a Wild West Tremors. I know that. Okay, I thought uh, so. <laughs> but but you know that they at least I, I respect that they're increasing the stakes and building the Tremors bestiary. How do we you know make it scarier and something new? And, and I think Mimic two <laughs> is taking the Tremors approach here to to tweak. The, the formula a bit, and that's, you know, the the last remaining Judas bug, you know, kills people and steals their faces and wears it. And that's, that's kind of creepy and also kind of, you know, they, they're, they look like people, but now they really look like people. And I, I'm, I'm down, I'm, I'm on board for this. Yeah, the, the concept of mimicking the face, uh, you know returns from the first one and it it's it's a good progression mm -hmm. because in the first one uh the insects the creatures use their existing carapaces or yeah to create the faces but in this one um the creatures are actually taking the faces and kind of piling them onto their own face yeah, yeah the, the first one they have 
I, I don't know if it's their wings or just, you know, some, what are they called? The pinchers that, you know, they have that they can fold over their face to make it look humanish. But in this film, like, there's a sequence where, you know, the, the thing is living in the school, this decommissioned school, and a kid, uh, you know, crawls through the dirt to see what's going on, and he found, finds one of the half of the, the mimic faces. And I think the idea here is the, the mimic doesn't need to do that anymore. It's evolved. I don't need to do the close my carapace across my face because I'm just going to kill a dude and skin your face off and wear it, which is, you know, I, isn't that how Silence of the Lambs ends? Like, uh, Hannibal Lecter, like, skins uh, the, the police guy in his cage and wears that out? I mean, we're at that level here, Silence of the Lambs. What year did Silence, Silence of the Lambs come out? 1991. Oh, okay. So oh, yeah, this, 10 years this, way this before. Is, okay, so this is after that. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, okay, that's an interesting uh, connection. Um, well, I think that's the strong point of the film. I also think it's kind of the weak point as well, and it's just, it doesn't go full in. And I think it's... You know, I, I didn't actually revisit our Mimic One podcast before this, and maybe you should have. But I think one of the things we talked about was, is that movie felt like more like a siege film. You know, everyone's trapped in the subway car, and the, the mimics are, you know, assaulting them. And, you know, at that point, you know, who cares that they look like people, because that's not the threat anymore. The threat is, you know, they could be dinosaurs for all we care. They're just trying to get in and kill you. And so... You know, that, that the movie is called Mimic. That That's its gimmick. Mimic gimmick. <laughs> you know, the monsters look like people. We're, we're kind of in Invasion of the Body Snatchers territory where, you know, the idea is, is that person down the street, is that a real person or is it a mimic bug? And, you know, the first one doesn't go all in on that. And this one goes more in on it, but not all the way. Um, I, I think I would disagree with you. I think it... it shows a progression. No, no, it definitely shows a progression. Um and I think the the climactic scene in her apartment when she returns with Sal. I think they they do show the progression. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm actually curious what they will do with the creature in uh, Mimic 3. Well, we'll find not out the creature, in a year for but, it. <laughs> um you know, the offspring. Uh, I think no, I definitely agree. It's a progression. I just don't think they capitalized on it as much. Like, like the first half of the movie where the detectives investigating these murders, they all around Remy, and it's really the mimic bug doing it. I think that's more interesting. It adds that kind of thriller aspect to it and kind of detective procedural. It's the last half of the movie when they're trapped in the school that, again, the mimic gimmick... <laughs> is gone. You know, they know what the bug looks like. They're just running around trying to evade it. It's basically like an Alien or Alien 3 type film. Um, and then the end, because this movie has a twist ending, you know, Detective Klosky supposedly rescues Remy, but it's not really him, it's the bug. I'm like, that's, that's a nice twist. That's a great idea, but they don't execute it very well. Like, you know, they show the building, it's got the big fumigation sack around it, and they're at, like, the the plastic trying to get out and you see Remy clearly, but the guy is all shadowed and big like, well, <laughs> it's obviously not the detective. It's someone else. And the only other person in there is the bug. And so they, I, I get what they're trying to do. And I think it's a great idea. They just didn't do it right. If that makes sense. Maybe if they actually, 
you know, actually showed the detective rescuing her, and it's like a perfect copy of him, and it, you know, then the bug explodes out of him or something. I'm not sure, but it just wasn't executed as good as I think the ambition was. But I agree, the progression is awesome, um, and it does it, I think, better than Mimic 1 of capitalizing on these are bugs that are supposed to be like people. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they did the best they mm. they they could with it for um, a directed video movie. For a directed, yeah, and limited budget, mm-hmm. um, I do think that um, I I wasn't so much bothered by that. I mean, I I kind of had you know I knew it was going to be the bug, but <laughs> you know there was no big surprise there, and I think you know their effort to kind of mask who he who. Who is rescuing Remy? Um, I think they they did okay. I was all I was all right with it. I think there's other issues with oh, yeah. the movie, um, but I do want to say um, because I I might forget further in. But it's interesting that you picked up on the first half of the film being more, you know, the procedural, the cop, you know, investigating and so forth. Because this director has actually had had his start and has his auteur <laughs> is in kind of that crime verte uh type of uh genre and motifs and he does a lot of scene. police procedural shows yeah. doesn't he so yeah. it kind of it's interesting that you keyed in on that because that's actually his his background and i think you know it's the bring, better he, part of the film he brings that to to the film <laughs> this was also his uh directorial debut um, even though he had done uh, documentaries and things like this, this was his first uh, debut as a, you know, fiction story. You know, it's funny because Mimic One was basically Guillermo del Toro's day. I think he did one movie before that, uh, not Kronos, but Devil's Backbone, I think. But this was like his Hollywood debut in his second mm-hmm. film. So, so folks, if you want to kickstart your director career, work on the Mimic franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know what? Let's let's get the bad stuff out of the way here because there surprisingly there's actually a lot of good stuff going for this film. Um, you know, I think mostly the bad stuff just comes what plagues normal direct video type films. You know, there's obviously low budget going on. There's there's a lot of stock footage in this film that just doesn't match up with you know the real footage. You know, there's like scenes of like. Oh, here's the the stock, you know, Manhattan shot coming in with the clouds. I'm like, I've seen that before, and it just doesn't quite match up with the film quality. And there's some really bizarre editing choices, like at the end when Remy is stabbing the mimic bug, you know, it's like really sped up, and it's kind of cartoony looking instead of, you know, intense. Um, yeah, you know, really what really plagues the film is just those kind of things the the low budget aspects of it i think um yeah i mean i think that there were there were some plot issues like (laughs) why was klowski going back to the school for instance he had no motivation to do that um so it is kind of trying to understand like well what 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 is his motivation what 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 caused him to want to do this or that um, there's also some, um, I think some waste of actors, like you had, uh, Edward Albert in the film, um, who had been, you know, a big star back in the, I'm going to say late sixties into the seventies. And then he was, you know, so evening soap operas during the eighties and, you know, he was in for a brief period, 
Um, he was so, the Department of Defense mean guy. Yeah, and it would have been nice to see a little bit more of him because it was nice to see him. He got um, more screen time than John Polito, who that, that is has true. two scenes, and I think his total screen time is four minutes. Uh, hopefully he got paid well for those four minutes. So. Well, you know, those are the marquee value. Yeah, when we were yeah. watching it, we see the Department of Defense guy. And I'm like, he kind of looks like a Joe Don Baker type person. And you're like, no, no, I know that guy. I think his, his whatever his name is, he just spat it off. I'm like, oh my god, you're right. And he was in uh, <laughs> Galaxy of Terror, which we saw long ago. Yeah, yeah. So, um... I think it's also hard to, like, really get into the characters. And even though they do have some character development, I didn't, like, really latch on to anybody that I felt particularly strong about in this film. I think that's going to play into what I think the big theme of this film is, which we'll talk about in a minute, and that's the men in this movie and the creep factor of them. Mm -hmm. Because outside Remy... Almost every single guy in this film is deplorable, and there, there's a reason for that. But because they're so deplorable, you know, you don't have anyone to latch on to but Remy. And, and that's fine, you know, she's our heroine, but, you know, there's other characters that should have, like, motivations. Why are they doing what they're doing? And, yeah, I mean, and that, again, that's probably direct-to-video, you know, get the first draft <laughs> writing done and call it the final draft. <laughs> Um, I think before getting into the big themes, there's some good things about the film, like, um, uh, the ambience. We both like the ambience of the film. Yeah, um, I really like that the sequel really picks up on that ambience from the first one, but without setting it in, you know, the deep underground subway and, you know, old type of New York this is set still in New York City, but it's, it comes above ground. And um, their use of the dark alleys, the, the good fog machine, um, you know, fake rain, you know. But it helps to give that kind of uh, dark, dreary, constrictive tension that you need for this film. Like I, in the movie Seven. Seven does that yeah, very well. And I think, you know, being in the inner city... Um, where tenement buildings are very crowded, they're very close, the alleyways are small, I think really lends well to uh, the, the narrative. I mean, it is, you know, claustrophobia does play a part in the mimic cinematic universe, you know, being trapped, you know, in the subway, in the car, tight spaces up here, the tight alleyways, even when they're trapped in the school, you know, there's confinement and falls and stuff, and, you know, the idea that, you know, these phase us as the audience, phase the characters, but not the cockroach people because they can squeeze into everything. And, you know, that's that's a, an aspect of it that, you know, uh, the claustrophobia you don't usually see except like in space horror. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, w I would agree with that because it is such <laughs> tight spaces. I also liked uh, how the um, the bug, he's interacting with, elements above ground um and you know he is a very ominous and imposing figure in the fog and down the alley um he, and i think that worked 
you know, I, I'm kind of recalling our, in our first uh, podcast about Mimic 1 that, you know, that was some stuff that should have happened but didn't let, you know, he kind of looks like, the, the Mimics look like, you know, a, a Jallo villain. They look like they're kind of wearing a fedora and a trench coat standing far away, kind of uh, noirish, or even like the, the, the Strangers from Dark City. But since this movie only has one Mimic... You know, you kind of have to go all in on it, and I think the outcome is, is that you get something yeah. that's a bit more creepier, a bit more. It's like the difference between Alien and Aliens. There's a lot of aliens and aliens, but it's therefore more action-packed. While the first Alien film is more, you know, being hunted down, and it's this one critter that you can really focus on. Yeah, and I think uh, again, having it above ground where you can see him, you know, against the against the buildings and, you know, being kind of larger than life mm -hmm. and scary uh, and, and a mystery. Mm -hmm. the, the color palette is really good for the ambiance. It's all kind of greens and street light brown, yellowish. And, I and think... even, even hints of blue. Mm -hmm. And in the school, you've got that kind of dungy brown, yellow, <laughs> green from the, the old fluorescent <laughs> lights that really works well. If I recall, Del Toro's version also took advantage of that color scheme. So if this movie was trying to mimic mimic one in that regard, I think it was successful. And music-wise, uh, I, I think they lifted a whole bunch of music cues from the first one and applied it in the second one, even though they have a different composer. And I only say that because there's a lot of these motifs and that they used in the first one. And I only really remember that because... As I brought up in our first podcast about this, uh, there's a band, Frontline Assembly, that greatly sampled a lot of stuff from Mimic 1, including a lot of music cues. And so, rewatching, not rewatching, watching Mimic 2 the first time, I'm like, oh, this is stuff from Frontline Assembly, ergo it's from Mimic 1. But they're good, ominous cues that really, um, I think, underscore the, the tension and a bit of the mystery and otherworldliness of this particular... I mean, it's New York City, but, you know, this is a more mysterious, darkly lit, seedy, uh, giant cockroach <laughs> section of it. <clears throat> um, the, the, I think the Department of Defense people, you know, they're, they're portrayed as your kind of stereotypical, here's the government people coming in to hush everything up and keep everything quiet. And surprisingly, you know, they're really the good guys. They're not there to cover up anything. They actually want to kill the bug. But, like, their sequences when they're shining the ultraviolet light on the buildings and stuff, and you see that all the, the slime trails. That was really cool. That, yeah. That's cool. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that's something that, you know, probably more capable hands, they could really exploit that. Like, you're like you're trapped and you're running away, and you shine the light and you see, like, the, the trail, like, oh, don't go down there. Which they kind of try to do. The, the character takes Polaroid photos around the corner to see if there's someone on the other side. But... Which I guess, you know, for a 2001 film before <laughs> cell phones and stuff is innovative. But, yeah, the ultraviolet, like, slime trails, they look like, you know, the shows where the, the mimic bug has been. And it's basically looks like it's been all over the side of these buildings. It's a giant spider web of branches and stuff. That's cool. That, a yeah, good idea. I, I thought that was really well done, you know, because, you know, you're, it's, it is, it's interesting. It's a it's a great statement on inner city, which tends to be overlooked, and you know basically you don't want to look at it. Mm -hmm. And yet here you have uh, these dark suits, the Department of Defense coming in, 
and they're exposing this network of of cockroach slime. It's just very interesting. It, it's it looks creepy too. That's the yeah. thing. Is it? It looks. Uh, I mean, you know, other horror movies would have like the sheriff or the detective, you know, find the dead body and like lift it up. Oh, something bad's been through here. And you know, this movie has. You know, they find corpses hanging from like power lines. But you know, this was something else added to it that you know shows. Hey, this thing can walk along the walls, and it's creepy and slimy, and it's been everywhere. You're not safe. Yeah. I was just thinking, ooh, it's almost kind of like X file ish, you know, in 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 the way they project the the slime. Even the the couple of male characters hanging from telephone poles and wires and things like that. Uh, there's even a shot of you know the usual pair of tennis shoes that are hanging from a wire and then it, it keeps pan the camera pans up and there there's a guy hanging from the wire too so I, I'm with you I mean kind of like we talked about earlier that the first half of the film's the stronger half of the film because it's kind of procedurally and detective-y and that that's X-Files back in the 90s and so may, maybe this would have been a little better film if they kept that kind of X-File-y approach uh mm-hmm. uh because it does, you're right. The, the very first half does feel excellent. I could see a Mulder and Scully type character, uh, although in this case it would be the Detective Klosky and maybe someone else, you know, exploring what is going on here. Um, and you and you sort of have those characters with Klosky being kind of, uh, I guess, Mulder and uh, Remy being Scully. Scully. Yeah, and a, a little bit. There's some repeating themes from this from the first one to this one, like the first one is really big on like having a kid, the, the main couple and that are trying to conceive a kid. There's a, an uncle who has a, a kid that's uh, autistic and he can, he gets adopted by the, the couple, you know, the insects have baby bugs. Um, this one doesn't have like childbearing on it, but it does have, and I'm not really gifted in this uh our expertise or anything but it does definitely wants to say something about you know inner city the school system and and kids in it um you know these are uh urban kids their poverty line you know one of them acts out uh you know uh remy is the teacher that goes above and beyond for them the school is getting closed down so you know there's definitely no resources being funneled to the folks that need, you know, the resources the most. And it's kind it's not really like super explored, but that kind of theme is there. Yeah. Um, I got that too. You know, for Sal, uh, the young boy, um, he doesn't seem to have a parental, uh, (laughs) presence and, you know, it even uses the trope well, my aunt is at work. You know, oh, my, my aunt can't pick me up. She's she's going to be coming at, you know, 7 o'clock at night or whatever. When, in fact, the kid is probably living on the streets or, you know, barely has a parental presence in his life. Um, and it's probably minimal. It's probably something that could have been explored a little bit more. But, you know, given, you know, it is a movie. It's a, It's about... It's an 80-minute-long uh, okay. film, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other character that's also a teenager, or kind of like late teens, is the Nikki character. Mm-hmm. And he also has... He's, I think, the one that's acted out. But he takes a different interest 
in Remy. Remy is the central character where she's either the mother, a potential mate, yeah, kind of either or of mm-hmm. those. And of course, you know, most of the men see her as a potential love interest as a mate. Um, and Nikki, this teenage boy, is really no different. He, you know, is kind of like first crush on a teacher type of thing. And, you know, he wants to be her boyfriend. But he's underage, and, you know, she rebuffs him. And, and the background for him is he's kind of in the same boat as Sal, but his is a little mm-hmm. different. He sleeps at the school, and he has, like, wounds on him because one of his parents beats him. So there's yeah. that, there's that ba- a little bit of background to him, probably why he acts the way he acts. And so, again, it's not, it's not a dominant thing, but it is there that, you know, these are... Uh, broken or uh, abused kids and you know Remy is the you know probably the one positive in their uh, you know in their life you know they come and I do have to say you know she teaches entomology to kids and I'm like I'm sorry that's cool I wish I had a bug class growing (laughs) up Um, I I think this is probably the good segue to talk about kind of what really is the major point of this film Uh, and that's Men, the creep factor. Mm-hmm. Um, every, it, almost every man in this film is creepy towards Remy. Not all, but I would say 90% of them. Um, you got Nikki, uh, the, the student who wants to be her boyfriend, and he fondles her. At one point. At one film. point. You got a former date that bashes in her door and is all aggressive because she says no to him. I mean, that's very threatening. You know, when you say no to someone, I mean... That's the book Gift of Fear right there, folks. Um, There's another dude that she goes on on a date with, and he wants to grab her butt, but he does stop himself, so instead he kind of caresses her hand. Um, Which also is kind of like, well, that's creepy too, you know. (laughs) Just the way men (laughs) respond to her. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, almost every (laughs) single time it's like, Ooh. The the main detective Klosky, he's not overtly creepy directly to her, but he goes into her apartment and opens one of her doors and she keeps all these Polaroids of selfies of her interactions after you know, basically all the men that do something bad to her. She has a selfie of that encounter. So for our young lister listeners, think Instagram only in a physical form. Yeah. <laughs> but like he steals the Polaroid of his her encou- reaction yeah. I mean, to him. He eventually gives it to her and apologizes, I stole this. But before that, you know, he's driving in a car, fawning over this picture of her sad. Crying. And, all, and, and, crying yeah. and he almost gets into an accident. I mean, that's kind of creepy. You got John Polito with his four minutes in the film. He's the principal of the school. And, you know, he's crying like, yeah, I've been working out. You know, he's saying like, you know, so he can basically have sex better with her. And, you know, the kid is standing right there. Yeah, he doesn't see the kid. <laughs> so he's he's basically has just in a prior scene said basically that she's going to not have a job mm-hmm. because he suspended her. Mm-hmm. And then in the next scene is wanting to get it on with her. And then he backpedals as soon as he's like, oh, Sal's here. Let mm-hmm. me, let me. Oh, that's not what I really meant. It's kind of an interesting statement, too. And, and then, of course, the, the mimic creature. Uh, wants to, uh, you know, have mimic babies with her. Uh, I'd say the only male character that doesn't, you know, fawn and harass her, there's Sal the little kid, 
the Department of Defense people could care less about her. In fact, they're okay if, like, she dies. I mean, you know, one life to save everyone else. And the the maintenance guy, you know, even though he dies by the mimic critter... Lou. Lou, mm-hmm. he, 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 he's not... His, his, his I'm going to say, issue, his only crime in the film is being, you know, fat and a little slovenly. And so, because of that, he's got to pay the price and die, which is you know, sad, but, you know, he's actually, like, friends with Remy. He's like, I will miss you when this place closes. You're, like, the best thing about this place, but he doesn't make any advances toward her or anything. Yeah, and I would say that's almost kind of a weird plot thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the bug is seeing Lou as a competitor, Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see how Lou in any way ever was a threatening or a threatening competitor for the bugs. So, it, you know, it's just a matter of, again, it's something where, you know, uh, to propel the story, man must die. <laughs> well, it, it gets into, you know, the big question here is, what's so special about Remy that everyone wants to get into her knickers, basically? That's what it comes down to. Everyone is, there's so much sexual harassment directed her way. Um, but So what, what's unique about her? And... We don't really get a proper answer to that other than, one, she's a, a character left over from the first one. Uh, so how do you make the main, you know, make a background character in the first one, the main character in this one? Uh, th- I guess that's how you do it. But two, you know, there is a sequence that they talk about, you know, pheromones and pheromones can make the males... Um, uncontrollable for their urges and stuff. And this is a scene when she's describing as she's disrobing because you got to have your titillation in this type of movie. And the one, the Nikki students behind her going, Oh God, yes, please. Um, it's creepy, but you know, it's almost like this, this is where it gets creepy overall because this is a Miramax film. And that means there's a Harvey Weinstein fingerprints all over it. And folks who don't know Harvey Weinstein, he was a, big i mean he still is he's in jail now but he was a producer that he raped and sexually molested a lot of women actors maybe men too i I'm, i may be confusing that with what happened to brendan fraser but regardless uh he he sexually harassed a lot of women and you know and if they said no to him like he basically killed their career and so i can't help but think that those fingerprints are here because you know it the justification of everyone sexually harassing Remy is because her pheromones, ergo she wants it. And I'm like, that's that's awful. But, you know, a lot of people try to say, oh, it's the woman's fault because I acted that way. And that's, that's terrible. And But then I started thinking, well, maybe it's a different type of message because those who do harass her eventually die. You know, it's kind of like the slasher motif, like the kids that do sex, drugs, and rock and roll get killed. The purity virgin ones don't but the thing is is you know some folks that harass her don't die and some folks who i mean some folks who do harass her don't die like nikki and but some folks who don't harass her like uh, lou do die you know he's not guilty of anything so you know that kind of theory goes out the window that you get punished for your sexual harassment crimes so I don't know. It's just, there is a, a creepy Weinstein, you know, not very good on how to treat lady fingerprint on this film. Yeah, and I mean, well, that that existed in the uh, first film, too, because wasn't Mira Savino? What? Yeah, she, she I, I, I think it, 
that was one of her big breaks in that film, and then her career basically died after that because of Weinstein was like, hey, you know, why don't you do some stuff with me? And she actually said no, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it happened anything on screen in Mimic 2, but def a Mimic 1, but definitely behind but, the scenes. Yeah, you know, to think that you have this kind of themes going on on screen, mm -hmm. and then you have to think about... What's the motivations behind the scenes with like this this producer, um, and the fact if we, you know, as you were saying, I think you said in the first one, or we definitely talked about in the mimic one discussion, the fact that uh, Guillermo del Toro did not have editing uh, power mm -hmm. in um, in mimic one, and I mean he since did a, a recut. Yeah, there's a director's cut. That's what we watched last year. Yeah, but the fact is is that there's some weird stuff going on behind the scenes with regards to this. And the fact that, honestly, this idea of female-male relationships, um, what's healthy, what's not healthy, mm -hmm. and then mixing that up with this concept of procreating, uh, the fact that, you know, it's human... So when... Mimic one, we had uh, Susan and Peter trying to, to get pregnant. And then while Remy's not trying to get pregnant or anything like that, she is a surrogate mom. And you have the bug trying to connect with her as well as all the other guys. So, you know, it is a kind of an unsettling thing. There's one person I forgot about this. It's at the five minutes before the very end, you know. So Remy... In a very speed shoot the hostage type moment, the bug like stabs her and then heals her by putting like larvae inside her, like to eat the dead tissue and stuff. But so she goes to the hospital, you know, she wakes up and the doctor's like, you know, oh, you're back. It was a miracle. But he says, this is a doctor saying this. I don't know, you know, whether to write a paper on you or to dance with you. And I'm like, that's unprofessional. What? And you're, you know, again, it adds to every male character in here is just drawn to Remy and it's because of her pheromones I guess it's her fault that's kind of what I'm getting through this and uh, and that to me that's scuzzy mm -hmm. yeah. and, and then you know you tie that into something bigger like a Harvey Weinstein he he can walk away saying yeah it's not my fault I do what I do you know women deserve it because you know they do stuff and I can't control myself around them I don't think that's a purpose subtext there. You know, I don't think the director of this thought about that. But it's just, it's just one of those, you're revisiting a film, or in our case, watching it for the first time 20 years after it came out with, you know, all the Weinstein stuff coming out. It just makes you go, yeah, there's, there's an ick factor to this. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, um, I, again, the movie is better than it had any right to be for an unnecessary sequel. Good ambience, the evolution of making the bug wear people faces, uh, a lot of stuff in the right direction for sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I was also thinking that um, it also talks um, as as another thing that's not completely explored, but something that we've seen in other other films and in our reading about authority figures, you know, being kind of questionable um, or inept. And um, we get that with um, Klasky um, as well as the cops and, of course, the principal, uh, Joe Polito's uh, character. 
all being like in positions of authority, but they're they're using their power in not a very good way. And again, that that wraps into the the bigger uh, topic of you know Remy and you know women in the 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 global sense. You know, I think we talked about that in our first podcast on mimic, where you know there's like a distrust of authority and scientists because. In all honesty, you know, in Mimic 1, there's like a disease going around, so they breed this cockroach to take out the disease, but then they lose control of the cockroach. And there's even one of the police officers in the, the film who who's very antagonistic against... Uh, oh, Peter. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, so he's kind of antagonistic against them, but then, you know, the whole scoop comes out of the scientists. He's like, all you scientists are messing up everything anyway. There, There's a little bit of that in here as well but the weird thing is is when it comes to authority the uh albert edward what, what's his name edward albert El, edward albert like he's like the grounded person who yeah he's dod dark suit guy he actually wants to eliminate all this stuff the only person who <laughs> really sees like the true threat of this although remy does too but like like the detect i mean the, the detective klosky is a really it, I don't want to say interesting, just, uh, it, you know, he goes and interviews Remy because he thinks she's a suspect in these killings, and of course he takes the Polaroid over, and it's kind of creepy over it, and like his partner calls her a lesbo, you know, it's very misogynistic and stuff, but on the other hand, he does show like some detective awareness, like, like he says, yo, dude, lift up that desk, and he's like, I can't do that, and he's like, exactly, it's a 200-pound desk, you, you think this Remy girl can do that? So he has, mm -hmm. like, as an authority person, like, he, he's able to be a good detective at sometimes, but then a creepy per. I, I guess, you know, it's those movies like uh, Bad Lieutenant or whatnot, where you have, like, a cop that's good at their job, but at their sideline is they do drugs, they <laughs> they bribe and blackmail people. I don't know. I, you know, a corrupt cop. I don't think the detective is necessarily a corrupt cop as much as he he just has this ick factor that every other dude in this film has. And you know, is that is it is that inherent with him, or is it because of an encounter with Remy that's a triggered thing? I don't know. It's about the pheromones, dude. It's, it's about the pheromones. Uh, well, anyway, I, I think I'm golden on Mimic 2. Uh, I, I would say if you're marathoning the Mimic films, <laughs> making a drinking game out of it or something, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I'm down for it. Could it have been a better film? Absolutely. Is there kind of a, a Nick factor here and there? Yeah. Um, but, you know, for capturing that Gilmil del Toro ambience, music, and, you know, seeing the, at the time, you know, CGI's come way long way since then, but the bug still looks pretty good. The little tiny bugs when they open up the suitcase, you know, is very Mummy 99-ish. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, you know, there there's some good stuff happening in Mimic, too, so I, I, I'd give it, I'd give it a thumbs up on my end. Um... Yeah, a hesitant thumbs up. Hesitant thumbs up. Yeah. The creep factor. I, I would say definitely go in with low expectations. And, you know, you'll probably find it an interesting film and uh, kind of a okay sequel to <laughs> of the first film that we actually um, did like. Mm -hmm. so. so, folks, tune in a year from now when we conclude <laughs> our Mimic discussion with Mimic 3. 
And on that note, we're going to take a short musical intermission. Uh, do stay tuned. We'll be uh, given a thank you and uh, also discuss some upcoming events. Welcome back. We would like to thank Robert Atone for providing this episode's opening bumper. We had the pleasure of interviewing Robert for our transmission episode that released in June. Robert is the author of the Rise Trilogy, as well as the newly released Nocturnal Creatures. Highly recommend, by the way. Robert's social media details are on the show notes, and we wish Robert much continued success. So, for upcoming events... Uh, for our Transmissions episode this month, we'll be interviewing Erica Wirth regarding her new novel, White Horse, and then talking to Chris Philbrook, author of the Lovecraftian-inspired series Darkness of Diggory Finch, which includes his recently released second book, Twelve. Uh, we also ourselves have some upcoming appearances. Um, I'll be on the Fan of Fan podcast discussing John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, and Michelle will be on the Galactic Terrors YouTube show on October 13th doing a nonfiction reading about horror comic book artist Bernie Wrightson. We'll update the show notes with links to those when they post. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can email us at, eight, at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast... Please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we're still waiting for a dollar. <laughs> we do have a coffee account. No pressure. A link is provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>